Now, um, since the devil's having a bit of a field day, we don't have much going on by way of AV, as in we don't have it. So we had a video lined up, which is not going to happen, but I'm going to do the Bible reading for us. We're continuing in our study in the Minor Prophets. And so you're going to have to do some more work today than you usually do. You're going to have to get out something to take notes because the points are not going to come up behind me and you're not going to track. You've got to take notes as well as Tony Hobbs takes notes and then you'll be all right. Um, Bring out your, your Bible, whether that's your device or whether you've got a physical Bible here, bring it out because it's not going to come up behind me. We're going to be reading what? Reenact the video. <laughs> well, it was just a Bible reading, but I'll just put on a chick's voice. Behold. Okay, no. Um, so anyway, we're in Malachi chapter 3. If you can't find Malachi, you go to like the middle of your, of your Bible, and then you go even more into the Old, into the New testament area. And you'll find it there. It's the last book before Matthew. And we're going to be reading from Malachi chapter 3, which was where Dunks actually ended off. And we're going to read sections from there, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 6 to 10. So this is God's word. He says, Behold, I said my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Verse 6. For I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. But return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That's our text for today. Now, some of you are like, well, you see, I've heard this preach. I've heard this text in Malachi. We're in for a hectic preach about money. And that is no word of a lie. We are going to do that, but not because we like to pick on topics, but because we find it in God's word. And we're a church that simply will preach whatever God has put in his word, because it's his word, it's good. It's got a word for us today. And here with the minor prophets, sometimes the books which we've neglected are the very areas where we need to be corrected. And this text has got something for you to say to your heart today. And the most common phrase I will say is, Can we just check our hearts on this matter of money? 
I believe God would be asking that question of us quite a lot. Because unbeknownst to us, money might just have a little bit of a grip on our hearts. And so three points for today, which you literally have to write down. Heading number one, how money exercises power over us. How money exercises power over us. Heading number one. Two, why. Why money exercises power over us. How money exercises power, why money exercises power over us. And third point, how we can break the power that money has over us. Makes sense. So first and foremost, how money exercises power over us. Malachi 3.8, God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. God is really disappointed and hurt in this time. And you know, to my intellect, I ask myself, how can a man rob God? That doesn't make sense. And when something like that confuzzles me, then I go to the Hebrew and I'm like, this will clear things up. So I check it up. Now this word that's translated as rob is only used in Malachi, very unique. And these Bible nerds of Hebrew, they say that this word really means to oppress. Like when a wealthy superpower oppresses a lesser nation and exploits them. Yes, now I'm even more confused. How can a person exploit, suppress God? Now I'm even more confused about this whole thing. Even the oaks in the Bible are confused. They say, how can we rob you? How can we oppress you? And God says, I'm talking about your lack of generosity with money. Now, as you hear that, you might think like the Israelites, but that isn't really my issue. Like, I get the fact that there are some people that issue, and I'll send the link of the sermon on to them gladly. But as for me, that isn't really my problem. Well, I would like to suggest to us that if we understand something about what the Bible teaches about money, we would take it as an assumption that we might just have a problem in this area. And that leads me to my first subpoint under heading one, because now we have to track very carefully without the thing behind me. Sub point one under heading one. How does money exercise power over us? It blinds us. Money blinds us to the true owner of our money. The first lie money will sell you uh, is that it blinds you to the fact that God owns everything you have and will sell you a lie that you deserve and earn everything you've got and you can spend it however you want. But that's not the position of the Bible. We read here in First Chronicles, David says, verse 28, 29, David and the Israelites, they're trying to raise funds for this temple building there. And Davi bursts into song. He loves it to give money. He says in verse 12, both riches and honor come from you, Lord, for all things come from you and of your own hand you've given to us. Verse 16, oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we've provided for building you a house, it actually comes from your hand and is all your own. Everything that you've got is a total gift from God. That might not compute for everyone because you say, but listen, man, I work really hard for everything I've got. I don't dispute the working hard, but the thing is that you worked hard for everything you have with abilities and circumstances God provided. You didn't fashion your brain and put the synapse connections together to enable you to think or fashion your hands and your eyes to give you abilities. God did the whole thing. You wouldn't really be working at Investec if you were born in a yurt in outer Mongolia on a mountain. (laughs) You wouldn't even necessarily be in the same place you are today if you were born in another family down the road in South Africa. Everything you have is a total gift from God. Not only is it a total gift from God, 
But the fact of the matter is we need to check our hearts, whether we've started to feel entitled about the things that we have as if we should have them, or do we still accept the gift nature of what we have, that all that we have is God's, is actually from him. Secondly, we also see that just because God has given us a gift doesn't mean he gives up ownership of it. Verse 11 says, all that is in the heavens and the earth is God's. That means that everything you've got actually belongs to him still, even though it's a gift. So how that, let's get a modern example down. How, what that means is we relate to our possessions the same way that a money manager or a broker relates to the money from their investors. When you, the, the funds increase, you can get excited. You can say, more money, we're going to get dividends on this stuff. But you don't actually get under the delusion that these funds are yours to do with whatever you wish. There are laws in place that you have to do whatever the money manager's values and desires are for those funds. And if you don't do that, it's actually a crime that's called fraud. Are you guys with me? Now we can understand verse 8. Because verse 8 says, implies behind it that God is the creator investor. Everything that we have is his. And everything that he has, he's given for us to manage, but it's his. And the moment that we deny the gift nature of money and we say it's ours, and the moment that we don't spend it in line with his values and desires he allows out in the Bible, we are defrauding our investor. In the words of Malachi, we are robbing God. God says, I've given you money so that you can appropriate heaven on earth. It's for my kingdom. But the moment that we say, no, it's for me and I'm going to spend it how I want, we are robbing God's kingdom. We are plundering and pillaging God's kingdom. What society calls stinginess, God calls robbing him. That is actually behind the teaching, will a man rob God? And this is a very serious allegation that God makes. And I wonder if we can check our hearts, if we've become a little bit blinded in this area. So materialism is very rampant. And I think it's hard for us to compute with what the Bible's saying because we live in Joburg, which was literally formed on a gold rush. This city is materialism central. And I wonder how much of our mentality has been absorbed by osmosis from being in Josie. We are so, materialism is just the normal. It's like blue jeans and getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth. It's like everyday life is materialism here. And I wonder if we're not connecting with what God really wants here. And when I say materialism, the definition I'm going with that would have come up on the screen, materialism is excess concern for, worry about, love of, or need for money and possessions. Excess concern for, worry about, love of, or need for money and possessions. And when we fall into that place, the Bible's claim is we wouldn't even know it. Which brings me to my second subpoint: How money exercises power over us is that it blinds us to the power and the influence it has over our hearts. Let's prove this from scripture. Luke 12, Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things. Jesus says, watch out for the love of money. Interesting because Jesus doesn't say watch out for adultery. Why? Is that because Jesus is like, adultery is cool, bro. No, it's not. It's because when you're committing adultery, you know about it. You don't wake up and go, oh, this is not my wife. I should have done a thorough check. Next time I'm checking the ID. Jesus doesn't say, 
Watch out. You could be committing adultery and you wouldn't know about it. We know Mensa if we were committing adultery. But you know what's even more dangerous than adultery? Materialism. Because Jesus says, watch out. Because you don't know when you're under the the influence of money. Because money blinds us to the power that it has over our hearts. So can we check our hearts in this area? Jesus says, be on your guard. Let's be on our guard. I just went, got carried away. Where are we at? Oh, yeah. If the Bible says many of us need to take care because we're under the influence of materialism, and if the Bible says that we wouldn't realize when we are, then I put it to you, like Harry Nell, that we should make it our working assumption that I might have this problem. Can we all just put hand on our hearts and just check? Maybe I've got this problem too. So Jesus says all that. But there is actually a guideline by which we can check how much of a grip money has on our heart that the Bible's provided. And that is the tithe. Something we're excited about, bless you. It says here, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions, says the Lord. You are cursed with a curse because you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now the tithe meant 10% of their income they gave to the full-time priests in the temple. And it always raises the question, is that an obligation for people in the New Testament era? Chris, that is a great question, Brew. Thanks for asking that. And the answer that I think that Bible um, commentators have said over the centuries, would God expect for his New Testament people who have greater privileges and greater blessings and a greater covenant than his Old Testament people, would God expect his New Testament people to give less money to him than before? No. Let me put it like this. Randy Alcorn, he says, are we even in the right place? Of the f- no, we're not even nearly in the right place uh, in the sermon. But it's fine, I'll work it out. Randy Alcorn says, there's a timeless truth behind the concept of giving God our first fruits. Whether or not the tithe is still the minimal measure of these first fruits, I ask myself, does God expect his new covenant children to give less or more? Because Jesus raised the spiritual bar, he never lowered it. John Piper says, giving in a regular, disciplined, generous way up to and beyond the tithe is simply good sense in view of the promises of God. I would put it to you that the reason that this thing of the tithe is not mentioned again in the New Testament. There is one place, and I'll get to it because I preached in the wrong order here. There is one place where it's mentioned, but the reason it's never mentioned again is because God doesn't want us to look at this 10% as a legalistic limit to our giving, but rather like a baseline and a starting point that you start with 10% and have faith to give much more than 10% because we live in a new covenant with greater promises. And so we should be expected to be much more generous than his Old Testament people. Now, Backtracking, there is one place where the tithe is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's extremely important. In Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus is talking to the religious group, the Pharisees, and as per usual, he's not chuffed with the dudes. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, well done, mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He affirms firstly Jesus, 
that you ought to tithe. That this hasn't become obsolete because we live in the New Testament. He affirms it by saying, these you ought to have done. But he adds this comment. You know what the problem is with you Pharisees? You give 10% to the church and you pat yourself on the back, but there's people in your community that love and justice demands you should meet their needs financially, but you've got a legalistic rule where you only give 10% of your money away. And Jesus says, that is the problem. You neglect love and justice. What we see from this passage is God really expects two streams of generosity to be coming out from our finances. Firstly, to tithe, to give to God, love the Lord your God with all your all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The second stream of our generosity is towards people. Love and justice demand it. Jesus says, don't neglect the tithe because you say, I'm just giving to people, and those that's the real need. Neither neglect to give to people because you say, I give to God, and that's all that's important. But with your wealth, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God is expecting a radically generous people that are after his own heart. God is radically generous and God is saying, have faith in me, give to me the first fruits of your income and give to people outside of that because I'm the Lord your God and I'm generous and I will cater for your needs. God is expecting something radical to come out of the church, something that could even do tidal rips through poverty in nations like this, something that could change the atmosphere of a city like Johannesburg. We can stand against the tide of materialism and trust God for a miracle because of the generous giving that comes out of a heart that loves Jesus. God is expecting us not just to worship him with our money, but give to other people. But don't neglect one or the other. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. God is expecting way up and beyond the tithe. Even in the Old Testament era before he died and was resurrected, he asked for two streams of generosity. But now he's died and was resurrected and we have the new covenant of forgiveness. Now we've got to be looking at greater measures of generosity because we've seen a greater measure of God's generosity. I'm glad I preached this in the wrong order. That was way better than my notes. No, okay. Um, when we're giving with percentages, I think there's wisdom in it. Because when you give a percentage, you give according to your means. It's not a flat rate. It means people that have less money give proportionately the same amount as someone who's richer. Now, I will say, Jesus really didn't like the Pharisees because the way that they gave money was like very obnoxious and outward and like they, they would drop money so it'd make a loud clang in the offering basket so they could prove that they're very holy and above everyone else. However, that didn't catch the eye of Jesus. But Jesus observed that somewhere in the church, there was some old widow that gave like the equivalent of one rand. And Jesus gathers his disciples, he says, boys, I truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than everyone else into this contribution box. Because the Pharisees just gave leftovers to God, money that was small change. But this widow gave of her very means because she loved God and because she had faith in him. Can we check our hearts in this? Do we give like Pharisees, leftovers go to God? Or do we give sacrificially out of what we got? That's something we just have to reflect on. We have to discern in our own heart. I remember when I started giving, obviously I can't compare to the widow's offering here, but my mom will remember when she, when she used to give me an allowance for like adversity when I was at Drom. And um, I used to tithe of that allowance to God first Monty. And it was like 150 rand that I tithed per month. Né? And I used to watch that 150 rand. I was like, that is three brais worth of food. <laughs> 
I can see the steaks because I used to bry like chuck. Yeah, you know the, the cuts of meat, that's chuck. Chuck with chicken spice. That's what I could afford at Drum because I'm tithing this flapping 150 rand. And I used to watch that. I'm like, that's a whole case of Zamalek going down the aisle here at Parker's. That could have been my beer, but it's for the Lord. Did it with grumpiness. And later on, God shifted my heart because I did it straight out of obedience to God's word when my heart yet wasn't there. But what God does when we're obedient is he moves our hearts in that direction. And subsequently, I find it very easy to give away money. If you're trying to make me be a sucker and give you money, it's not a good tactic. But God every month rips my heart in a direction for generosity. Laura and I just growing in this area and it's so freeing to be able to say, God provides for my needs, especially when I'm generous. And that's a principle we need to grab a hold of. There's a, there's a kingdom principle that when you're actually tight with money, you might want to pray and ask God, who do I need to be generous towards? God honors that kind of mindset. Because it really puts emphasis on the fact that God is my provider. Now, I just want to say for the joy of, the, of tithing and contributing to God's house and all that stuff, there might be some people that hear this message after it's recorded or that are in this house that you wish you could give to God. Your heart's in the right place, but you're sitting in mountains of debt. We don't want to see that. We want to help you with that. Yesterday, uh, we had our finance initiative, and we're really passionate about helping people out of that place. If you're sitting in this house and you're struggling deeply with finances, won't you come and see Vaughn after this gathering? We want to walk a journey with you where we can help you walk out of that mountain of debt and start to give freely to God. We don't want to exploit people. We want to help people. But I would also say, maybe you need to start, everyone in this house needs to start somewhere with giving. Maybe it's 1% if you're sitting there in that financial place and start to move into the direction of 10% and beyond. To the people that are very wealthy in this church, I would say that Jesus, he relays this message that of those to whom much is given, much is expected. Have we prayerfully asked God what he's expecting of us or do we just give a flat amount because that's what we've always done? Sometimes we need to check our hearts on this. Are we giving regularly? Are we giving sacrificially? Are we giving percentages? Are we increasing in our giving? And are we giving joyfully like Davi, who every time he gave money, he was singing stuff. What was he singing here? He was singing something about, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm nowhere in my notes today, but like he was singing songs to people, uh, to God when he was giving away money. But the, the truth of the matter is that tithing really is not the church's rule to rob people of their money, but it's actually God's statute to keep us, our hearts free from the love of money and to fuel his kingdom advancing. The most important thing in this world, the only thing that will surpass this world is God's kingdom. Let's give to that. And also, People skeptically think that tithing is a way to exploit people, but that's not the case. God sees the lack of tithing as an exploitation of his kingdom. So let's take this rebuke to heart and let's really search our hearts and check if we are giving or if actually money has a grip over our hearts. That's how money has power over our hearts. Second heading, why money has power over us. Malachi 3 says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Listen to these promises, yeah? that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. Yes, like God says elsewhere, never put the Lord your God to the test. But here he breaks his rule. He says, put me to the test in this thing. 
Put me to the test in this as an exception, says the Lord. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Yes, God is kind because everything we have is his. And then we give back what is already his and then he blesses us for it. How good is God? It's grace upon grace upon grace. It's just layers of grace. Um, and it's so counterintuitive that we need to give in order to be catered for. We think we've got to hold on money so that we've got money at the end of the month. No. The more free we are with money, the more we cater for in our needs. That's the kingdom way. And the truth of the matter is, Laura and I practice this as well, and I can promise you God has never let us down for one month, especially when we take a decision to be more generous with our money. We just find you can't outgive God. We just find it's impossible because he owns the cattle of a thousand hills, God does. Everything that, that is on the earth and the heaven is his. So you can't outgive God. And the truth is that if, he, if you honor him, he caters for your needs. I notice that it says, I'll pour out a blessing until there's no more need. Not, I'll pour out a blessing until the Ferrari's in your driveway. Because this isn't a prosperity gospel thing where in order to get more money, you give more money so that you can benefit at the end of the day. That is a false gospel that is very prevalent. But God says, put me first in your finances. I'll make sure that there's no need in the house. New Testament scripture is saying the same. Uh, Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. See, God's really after your heart. If your heart is after Jesus first, he provides for the stuff. Conversely, if you're after your own interests, you might well gain the whole world, but you might lose your soul. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve God and money. This is why money has such power over us because why? It binds us. B-I-N-D-S. This is now a different point. Eh? It binds us. And what the, the satanic influence is that we should, our heart should be bound to material stuff instead of the living God. Because we read here, other translations say you can't serve both God and mammon, the, the, the God of money. Satan really wants to bind your heart and enslave you to material stuff so that you can't be free. There's a hint in our text that says in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Very important word because that Hebrew word that's translated storehouse is otsar, which means treasury. Bring the full tithe into my treasury. Very profound. Because every single religious system at that time had a temple, and every temple has a treasury. And whenever you, you're giving money to that treasury, you're actually fueling the worship of that God. So when God says, bring the full tithe into my otsar, the implication is if you're not tithing there, then your money is in some other temple worshiping some other God. And so we need to check our hearts here. Let me give you some examples to help you discern if, you just, if money's using you or if you're using money, because those are already the two relationships that exist with money. Né? So let's talk about my love of Kruger, because the preaching team said, before you rebuke people, né? Um, talk about Kruger. Okay, so if I find it very difficult to give away money to God, but in that same month, I can spend money super easily on Kruger holidays. The money just flies out of the account as if carried along on the wings of the Holy Spirit, but I can't give money to God because it's difficult, then maybe Kruger is my temple. Maybe I get what I need from Kruger instead of from God. And I might need to check my heart on that. 
Let's do some other examples. What if you find it very difficult to give to God, but when it comes to buying clothes, oh, it's like falling off a log. It just happens. It just transpires. You know not how that money disappeared from the credit card. But you find it difficult to give money to God, then maybe your wardrobe is your temple. Maybe the God that you worship is your physical appearance and desirability. Maybe you're looking to your approval from other people instead of approval from the Lord himself. You might just need to check your heart if this is the case. If you struggle to give to God, but house renovations, oh, yes, but it just happens, my bro. I don't know how, it's, it just happened. If, that, if that's the case, but you struggle to give to God, maybe your house might be your temple. Maybe it gives you a sense of significance that my house is so great and you don't get significance from the Lord, but from material stuff, you might need to check your heart. Maybe that's your temple. You guys are getting really uncomfortable, eh? Okay, maybe there's some people in this house that are not big splurges of money and you're like, I'm a saver. He's not gonna get me. Well, if you struggle to give to God, but on the other hand, Darren, you manage to just put that money in the savings account. No worries. And then you calculate every day and you check on the balance. Still that much money? Yeah, it's good. Check on it. Savings account, portfolios. How's the stocks? Oh, it's good. If that's the case, you just easily put money into your savings account, but you can't give to God, then maybe your bank balance is your God and that's your temple. Maybe you're looking to that for a sense of security instead of from the Lord God Almighty. You might just need to check your heart. Are we getting significance, approval, security from material stuff? Because Mammon talks a big game, but he can't deliver on those promises. Money is not going to stop cancer. Money is not going to stop tragedy. Money is not going to give you security um, and all the other stuff I mentioned before. Whatever it was, significance, approval, money can't buy that stuff. But Satan will sell you the lie that it can and will bind your heart to those things to keep you from Jesus who actually can give you security, significance, and approval. This is the deep problem of why money binds our hearts and why money has power over us. Because wherever our treasury is spending money, our hearts are bound to that thing. Jesus said so. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The war on your spending is really the war for your heart. Because money flows joyfully to the place that, you, that your temple of worship is. And whatever you worship, you're going to be captivated. And whenever you're captivated, you're going to be bound to that thing. So that's why money has such massive power over us. It's Satan's tactic to prevent us from going to the God who can provide the things money lies that can tell you that it can. That didn't make sense grammatically, but you know what I mean. So I hope you guys are with me. That is why money has such power over us. So now let's get to some good news. How do we break that power? How do we break the power that money has over us? That's heading number three. I think there's a hint in Malachi. It says, behold, I'll send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord who came to his temple there is, is actually prophesying about Jesus. And Jesus one day did come down to said temple, but what he did there was he overthrew the tables in John 2. On Palm Sunday, they're like, he's the Messiah. This is what Malachi was preaching about. And then Jesus comes, this correct, and starts throwing stuff around in the temple. Why would he do that? And the, <laughs> the Pharisees are livid. And they're like, Jesus, how can you do that? And Jesus says, destroy this temple. 
And in three days, I'll raise it up. But the Pharisees were confused. And they said, but it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you say you're going to raise it again in three days? But they did not realize that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Mm, Interesting. Jesus says, kill me, and I'm going to put all temple worship out of business. Because Jesus is so anti-religion, it's scary. Every God comes with temples and codes of conduct because that forms the gap between God and us. That's the conduit. That's the bridge. And Jesus says, destroy my body, and I'm going to put every temple in the world from every religion out of business in one day. Hectic, Jesus. He says, I have a new way, and I'm the messenger of the new covenant. I'm the purifier, and I'm the refiner. And my blood will bridge the gap between God and people. My destroyed and resurrected body will now be the bridge. And on that day, Jesus did go and fall into that chasm between us and God. But because no sin was found in him, death couldn't hold him. And he rose from the dead. And the veil in the temple was torn in two and an earthquake ripped through. And Jesus defeated Satan and sin and death and religion in one final blow. And why did he do all that? He did it for you. Did it for Gustav. Did it for Simon. God loves you. Jesus did that because you are his heart's treasure. Every other treasure in the world is going to ask you to die in order to purchase that treasure. But Jesus is the only treasure in the world who died to purchase you. Because he loves you. And when we get there, that is the beginning point of generosity in the New Testament. That's the be all and end all. It's not about laws anymore. It's about the love of Jesus. That's why London preacher Charles Spurgeon says, there's no law to tell me what I'm going to give to my father on his birthday. And there is no law laid down to decide what a pair, what um, present a husband should give to his wife. No, there isn't a law for what affection we can bestow on the people that we love. No, the gift has to be a free one or else it's lost all of its sweetness. If we can't give away cash with a smile and a song to Jesus, it might be we need to spend some more time looking at the radical generosity of Jesus who didn't give 10%, he gave 100% of his life. Not in order for us to give 10% of our money, but for, in order for us to give 100% of our life to him. Jesus didn't give it all to improve our life. Jesus gave it all so we can give all of our life to him. Our money, our time, every week, every day is for Jesus because he gave it all for me. I give it all to him. Now we're, after, we're not in law anymore. And when we look at Jesus in that way, that's where significant security and approval is found. That's when the blinders that are over our eyes get lifted. That's when the binds on our hearts get broken and we surrender all to Jesus because he's worthy. And the band's gonna play the refiner again behind me here. And we're gonna go into a time of reflection because I wanna take communion just now, but I want us to reflect before we do. Has God been the number one affection of your heart or has apathy crept in there? Because the sacrifice of Jesus was so immense that it necessitates that we give our all to Jesus, nothing less than our everything. So we're gonna let the words of the song wash over us. We're gonna think about it, reflect, stay in your seats. 
and then I'm going to lead us in communion.